The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. It's not what you expected, is it? What do you mean? This. Death. What? We're dead, Jordy. <laughs> is that some kind of a joke? Our patterns were lost in a transporter malfunction. We never rematerialized after leaving the Romulan ship. <laughs> Wait a minute. What are you saying? That we're some sort of spirits? Spirits? Souls? My people used to call them Borjas. Whatever term you want to use, wear it. But my uniform, my visor, are you saying I'm some blind ghost with clothes? I don't have all the answers. I've never been dead before. We are not dead. According to Dr. Crusher, we died in a transporter malfunction at 1430 hours. Jordy, I saw her make out the death certificates. We need to make peace with our former lives. That's what I was taught. We have to say goodbye to the people who are in our lives. No. You may be ready for the afterlife, but I'm not. I don't see that we have much of a choice. When I was growing up, I never gave much thought to all the talk about Borjas. I figured that it was just superstition passed on to children. Fine. You go make peace with yourself, all right? I'm going to transporter room three. I'm going to figure a way out of this situation. Hello everyone, it's Thursday, December 13th, 2018. I'm Robert Vaughn, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing, it's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. What is the meaning of life? Apart from the Monty Python movie, which addressed that very question, although perhaps in a very roundabout way, we here at Just Right have been trying to answer that very question every Thursday on this show. And nothing hones an intellect focused on that particular question like actually dying, or in this case, clinically dying, being brought back to life, and spending months recuperating in a hospital with little or no memory of your experience. This is precisely what happened to Danielle Metz one year ago today. She joins me in studio with her father, you know him, Bob Metz, but they're going to be in the capacity of guests today because I think that's only proper to recount their personal experience of death and living. I too, being so closely associated with both Bob and Danielle, at least for the past 32 years, have my own thoughts on the matter. But after we begin with Danielle telling her story, which, to the relief of all involved, has a happy ending. (laughs) (laughs) But before we get to Danielle, I would like to remind our listeners to visit our website at justrightmedia.org, where you'll find links to all of our past episodes of Just Right, as well as all of our past episodes of The Danielle Met Show. You'll also be able to find links to all of our social media, including YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and yes, even Gab. And if you find what you hear on any of our shows to be of any value to you, follow the links to PayPal and Patreon and help us in our journey in the right direction. So, Danielle, tell us your story. Well, 
my story is mostly what has been told to me uh, because my memory or my, I guess you could say my life basically faded out sometime in the early weeks of December of 2017. Um, I only know basically what happened based on what I was told. And it's a very interesting position to be in. I know I was up and I was functioning. I apparently got very ill uh, to the point where I asked my husband to call an ambulance for me. And he said, are you sure? And I said, well, if I'm asking you to call an ambulance, you know I'm sure, because I'm the kind of person who avoids hospitals, doctors at all costs. Um, I only know that I apparently thought I was having a heart attack based on a text I stumbled across recently, where I was describing my situation a few days later, which I have no memory of sending. Um, they took me to the hospital. I was there for 15 hours or so. They diagnosed me with pneumonia, and then they sent me home with the prescription, which I faithfully took because I still have the container and I counted the pills. Until on December 13th, um, my husband noticed I was speaking gibberish, so he called the hospital or called the ambulance to come. I was saying that the numbers on the remotes were in somebody had moved them and put them in different places, which strangely enough. I have a vague recollection of. That's the only memory I have. And then, so he called the ambulance, and he got me dressed, and he took me downstairs. He laid me on the couch by the front door, and then my heart stopped, and I stopped breathing. And so he called 911 again, and they walked him through how to perform CPR. Um, uh, my twins were home at the time, my five-year-old twins, because apparently it was a snow day, which was fortuitous because it was 3 o'clock in the afternoon that this occurred. And had they been in school, my husband would have been gone to pick them up and nobody would have noticed. Um, my eldest son took my twins upstairs and kept them in their room to make sure that they didn't, didn't know what was going on. And the uh, ambulance attendants arrived. They performed CPR on me for, I'm going to guess, about 20 minutes. That seems to be Because I did meet them later and they said it was about that. Um, my husband thought I was just a goner. There was no way after that period of time. Um, I, they got me back or resuscitated me, got me in the ambulance, where again I suffered again another cardiac arrest where my vital signs were absent. Um, they resuscitated me again, got me to the emergency room, where again I suffered yet another vital sign absent situation with cardiac arrest. Um, they got me stabilized at some point, but apparently, according to what my mothers told me, they didn't, and what my husband told me as well, they didn't expect that I was going to make it through the night, or the night after that, or the night after that, and every day it was just waiting for something to go wrong. They had to keep readjusting this, that, and the other thing. I had a septic shock, which is basically toxic and usually, if not treated, can kill you within 24 hours. Um, I had fluid, a collection of pus between my lungs and the inner surface of chest wall. I had hypoxia. I had excess fluid between my heart and the sac surrounding the heart, which caused the cardiac arrest. Um, and, of course, streptococcus pneumonia. Uh, they stabilized me. I'm not sure at what point this was. I know they put a, they put a trach in my throat on the 29th of December because they couldn't keep me intubated any longer. So I was on a ventilator through a hole in my throat, which is why my voice has never quite recovered. And I can't sing anymore, which is really annoying. Um, could you sing before? Yes. Oh, okay. That's just a joke. <laughs> <laughs> yes, actually, I, I could at least I've never heard you sing. Oh, yeah. I, I used to like playing rock band and stuff like that. And karaoke would have been fun. But I can't. Uh, my throat is still raw and damaged from the experience. 
Um, apparently, I was. Well, you're awake. still in recovery to some degree, aren't you? It's not like you're totally recovered. No, but you're... I still I suffer quite. Like I still have. Um, um, again, everything that went that was a problem in the hospital, they told me it may get better. It may not. We'll just have to see because it depends on how my body gets better. But I was apparently awake on January first and responsive, which I have no memory of. They inserted four chest tubes in order to relieve the um, the liquid that had built up in the pus and the uh, bacteria and so forth, uh, which caused my lungs to collapse, which created its own problem. Um, apparently, I was awake during a large part of this. Uh, I can't imagine being awake and having four tubes in my chest, so I'm glad that my body or my mind decided, yeah, we're just going to not touch this. We're going to leave this aside. Uh, by the end of January, I was... Apparently speaking, and I had a lot of delirium. I had a lot of delirium dreams that I recall vividly to this day. I could write at least three or four books on the stories that my mind made up for me during this period of time. As I slowly started to regain consciousness, I started becoming aware that I was delirious, and I stopped talking a lot because I was afraid of what was real and what wasn't. I couldn't. I knew I wasn't distinguishing correctly what was real and what wasn't. So I was very mindful in my social context, which they actually mentioned in my chart, was that I started getting easily overwhelmed when people were questioning me. Um, They took my tubes out uh, beginning of February, and my husband tells me that he was still very, they were still very concerned that I was going to get another infection. They didn't expect me to survive, even then, even by the end of February, even by the beginning of March. It was still, um, my diagnosis was guarded because they didn't know if something, especially when you're in the hospital, you have all that trauma. Um, my kidneys went into failure. I had kidney dialysis. I was on feeding tubes. I had uh, tube, tubes sticking out of pretty much everywhere you could possibly have tubes sticking out. And But by March, I would say beginning of March, I started kind of feeling normal. They had taken enough stuff, tubes out of me. I was more myself. And March 15th, they transferred me from University Hospital here in London to Parkwood Hospital to do my rehabilitation because you have to understand I couldn't walk, I couldn't get out of bed, I couldn't turn over, I couldn't, I started sliding down, I couldn't even pick myself up to push myself back up the bed. You couldn't move I a couldn't single talk. finger on your hand. No, I, my son, yeah, my elder son told me that he would come visit me in the hospital and help me move my fingers on my hand. Um, I couldn't, they didn't give me any food, any water because I was on a G-tube because you have a hole in your throat and you don't know what hell is until you can't drink water. A simple drink of water is amazing when you've been through an experience like that. Um, I remember clearly when I was in uh, the ICU, the poor gentleman across the hallway from me. Well, I was going to bring that up. Yeah, yeah, he was, he just got in the hospital and he wanted a drink of water so badly, but because he was, had a trach, they couldn't give him any. And he was screaming and threatening them and crying. And it was just so heartbreaking. But I knew exactly what he felt because he, you, your mouth and you don't have any sense of, they give you, or they used to give me a little mouthwash just to rinse out and occasionally the ice cube, which I would drink and not tell them that I actually drank because that was against the rules. But hey, I, uh, I had the cough assist thing that I had to go through because I had a hole in my throat and I couldn't cough properly. They had to stick a tube to suck all the mucus out of my lungs for me, which was, let me just say that that is an experience I wished was blocked out of my mind, but unfortunately is not. Um, it took me about two weeks at Parkwood to get uh, healthy enough 
that they would let me go. I told them I was only going for two weeks because I wanted to go home. It was the weekend of Easter, and I'd missed my twin's birthday. I had missed Christmas. I'd missed New Year's. I missed my husband's birthday, and I wasn't going to miss Easter. So I came home on March 29th, 2018, after being in the hospital for 106 days. Bob, what was your experience through all this? Well, that's something Danielle sort of has given us the overview of it. And, of course, that was the part that she knew about the family and everyone else went through a whole different experience. And we'll get into that when we come back right after this. Dead? For 18 hours, 49 minutes, 13 seconds. Congratulations, Mr. Neelix. You've just set a new world record. That's impossible. You mean I lost consciousness? I was I was in a coma. No, you were dead. I'm, I'm stunned. I'm amazed. I'm grateful. Thank you, Doctor. Actually, you can thank Seven of Nine. The procedure was her idea. Yours. The Borg assimilated the technique from Species 149. I simply modified it. But you are welcome. Am I good as new? That remains to be seen. today's broadcast particularly poignant is the fact that it's one year to the day that this event precipitated itself. And I recall on the 13th of December a year ago, phoning up Danielle's husband, Dan, which is always convenient that they're both named Dan in the home, and um, asking him, I haven't heard from Danielle in a while, I said, because she hasn't phoned me like she usually does every other day. And he says, well, she seems to have the flu, right? And she's still sick in bed and blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, okay, maybe that's all it is. Well, sure enough, two hours later, I get a call back from Dan telling me that Danielle's on her way to the hospital in an ambulance. And even then, I didn't think that was a big emergency because everybody goes to the hospital in an ambulance in London, Ontario, if you have an emergency, right, of any sort. It's the only way you get in because we have socialized health care. And so, and she'd been in the hospital via ambulance before, and so have other members of my family, and I never really thought much of it. 
Well, sure enough, the shock came probably around 8 o'clock that night. Dan phoned me at home, and he says, you better get down here. And I said, why? He says, well, they say she's not going to make it through the night. And I'm just sitting there in shock, right? I'm going, what, what do you mean she's not going to What are you talking about, right? That kind of, uh, holy smoke, you can't be serious. And, um, well, I think I probably went into shock of a sort. I didn't go into a panic or anything, but I called my family and everybody got around. My sister came, picked me up. Next thing I know, we're all sitting in a special room that they have beside the IC, you know, intensive care unit in the hospital up at St. Joseph, or up at um, the University Hospital here in London at Western. And the whole family was in the room and we were all sitting there and um, gathering. Everybody dropped their plans and, they, and we waited till. I don't know, about 3, 4 o'clock in the morning waiting for the nurse to come in and tell us it was all over, but nobody ever showed up, and eventually we, we just all had no to go No news home. is good news. That's the way I played it, and it was always that way. And um, but, the, but the whole thing was like, um, again, you know, the, the expectations were that you wouldn't make it through the night, and you wouldn't make it through at all. In fact, they didn't expect you to make it. And so suddenly it's amazing what little habits you change and the things you learn about yourself when you get focused like that, right? And I'm talking from my point of view as the parent, as someone affected. Little things like every night when I'd go to bed, I'd make sure that I turned my cell phone off, you know, put it on silence. Didn't do that for a month and a half because I expected every call to be that call. So you can imagine what kind of state of mind you're in when every time you're picking up the phone, oh, here it comes, right? But it never came. And um, and so many other complications were going on at the time. The kids were just having their birthday party three days later after uh, after Danielle was in the hospital, and there was poor Dan putting on a birthday party, going through all the all of the uh, yeah. you know the routine. The kids were the kids were kind of oblivious to the whole situation. All they knew was um, that mummy was in the hospital. She was sick. She was sick, right? And of course, Christmas had them all busy with holiday things and so they were very distracted not much more than they would have been in another season but um what was interesting too was that when i was in the hospital there's a public one of the hospital publications there i forget the name of it but strangely enough you're familiar with uh, cjbk am radios um ken eastwood and at the time lisa brandt right they were the morning talk show hosts i was on their show once and uh, that was drove me a little crazy being the lefties that they were, but they had some very sad stories to talk about this same situation, sepsis. And I remember first hearing about poor Ken Eastwood, his son, who went to the hospital for something he thought was nothing, and he dies that night and he finds out it's of sepsis. Same thing with Lisa. She ended up in the hospital. She survived, but went through a really horrendous period uh, period of time and her story appeared in this hospital publication she was only in the hospital like for a couple of weeks and that was considered a big deal in ICU rather uh, whereas Danielle was in ICU for literally two months right I, I've not heard any case that's quite that bad but uh, they were spreading the word about sepsis and that was the first time I heard it just you know a few months before this happened to Danielle so I understood what she was kind of going through so there we were going through all of these other issues. And in, and in, during that time, too, it wasn't like, you know, when they say it doesn't just rain, it pours. Well, what else happened? A number of our friends and acquaintances passed away, including Danielle's um, godfather, 
Mike, Michael Brandt, who many Londoners might know because he used to have a column in the London Free Press, and uh, it was all about antiques. Antique toys and collectibles. Yeah, and valuing them, and he had a weekly column. was very popular. And, uh, you know, some other people, that was on dis- January 3rd. On January 1st, our good friend Ivan Kosurik passed away, who also people might know. He's a perennial <laughs> mayoral candidate, <laughs> candidate here and, and an outspoken person and, and a real, you know, character for the city of London. And then on the 2nd of January, of all things, um, poor old Thomas Haw passed away. And he was a person I knew in the past who was involved in my political life. And he was killed in a car accident, uh, struck uh, driving his bicycle. And there was a time in the past, most people might not know this, but he was planning to be my mentor. And he was teaching me how to give speeches. And he was working with me during the London Middlesex Taxpayer Coalition days and would be present whenever I gave speeches. He suffered a tr- tremendous tragedy, too. He has went all the way. His son passed away. And he was never the same. So, you know, you wonder how these things are going to affect you. And I found out a few things about myself that I didn't know. Uh, number one, I never say it's over until it's over. And, you know, I had an interesting talk with my good friend Paul McKeever, who assured me, he says, listen, he says, you know, who's that famous philosopher says that 90% of the things you worry about never happen, <laughs> right? <laughs> and I stuck to that. I'm going, yeah, why should I worry about something if it isn't going to happen? Or if I can't, if I don't have any assurance it's going to happen, right? Why worry about it yet? Or you can't control it either, right? Right. And that's the other issue. But, you know, there were a lot of things. It wasn't just your survival we were concerned about. Right? Yeah, I know. And so once we realized even that you were going to make it, even that wasn't the end of the crisis, because then we were concerned about uh, brain damage, about um, amputations. And Danielle, I have to tell you, I saw your, your legs and feet one day, and I didn't think you'd ever be walking on them again, because they were as black as charcoal. And I said, oh my God, she's not, she's going to be in a wheelchair the rest of her life, right? Well, guess what? Two weeks ago, I go in the hospital, and her, your feet stuck out from under the blanket, and they were as pink and new as a newborn baby's feet. I could not believe it. I think you mean two weeks later. But yeah. Well, no, I think it was about two or three weeks later. It's, it was very short time. It seemed short to me. She was only in the hospital during that period for eight weeks for the whole that period, right? And uh, But they were always working on her. There was, um, she, there was a... A nurse who worked on your case a lot, we, we would go in. His name was James. And this guy, I mean, if you want to see where the health care is, it's in the ICU, where all the talent is. I visited. And you, you were there, too. I visited you in the hospital, probably mid-January. I forget the exact yeah. date. But I waited until, of course, that you were at some point responsive. Yeah. Though you still had your trachs in, so, your trach in, so that um, I knew that you wouldn't be able to talk. So I go and visited you. You remember what you said to her? <laughs> <laughs> a few things, but not everything. But oh, I was only there for a few minutes because I knew that she was in distress and she couldn't respond and it was bugging her. But you don't oh, have no memory of this. No, but I know when, because uh, I oh, couldn't. Oh, you don't remember that? I, I don't remember anything until some, or at least maybe vague clips here and there. Because it's like, um, I went out with a friend of mine a couple months ago and she asked me, she goes, you know, if I woke up in your situation, I'd have been so mad because, you know, I this had happened to me and suddenly I'm in the hospital I said it's not really like that you don't just wake up and 
you're going, where am I? It's a gradual process. So there's clips, like little snips and pieces that I kind of maybe remember, but the timeline is completely lost to me. Like I said, I wasn't really myself till somewhere in February, but I know I was horribly frustrated not being able to talk because that, that you can't talk, you can't walk, you're you're trapped. You can't call for help. I'd have to take um, the finger monitor they had on my, because you'd ring the bell for the nurse and the nurse would take forever to come because there's usually only like one or two nurses on. And this is in the ICU, mm-hmm. which is, it was way understaffed. So I'd take my finger monitor off. I regulated my, or told them what my heart rate was and my oxygen levels. And it sets off an alarm. Then the nurse would come because they think you're dying. So it was basically I had to call a code blue every single time I wanted attention. Hey, you've hacked the system. Yeah. <laughs> well, do you remember what you told her when you visited her? Um, but, well, remind me. Oh, you, you, <laughs> Robert goes in, you know, big big sort of happy smile going, what are they doing to you, torturing you? <laughs> uh, yes. I, that sounds <laughs> like you. That's, and, and you tried to smile. Yeah. But uh, through, the, through the pain, because I, unfortunately I woke you up. <laughs> I was just going to go in there and ask the nurse, can I go in? She says, yeah, but she's asleep. So I said, I'll just go in and have a look at her. And then uh, you woke up. But I was impressed by all of the bloody machinery (laughs) in that ICU. It was like going into a science fiction theater. It was um, unbelievable, all the machines. And Bob tells me that they had already taken out half of them. Yeah, apparently they would do that just randomly. Like Dan would come visit me and go wait, there's less equipment here now. So that was his sign that things were improving mm-hmm. was by there's one less piece of equipment in the room and it was just slowly. And they never talked to him about, oh yeah, no, that's working now or she's doing that on her own now or this is fine. And- but this is like almost a month, maybe three weeks after you'd initially gone in and, and man, you were yellow. I yeah. knew oh, that you had, I forgot all your, your, yeah, your, your liver function jaundice. was down. I think your kidney My kidney shut failed. down completely. Yeah, and you were so jaundiced, it was scary to yeah, look Yeah, they at called you. it multi-organ system failure. Yeah. But I could tell from when I was talking to you that your brain function was there because you're, yes. you're making the proper facial responses to what I was saying. You know, when I would say something to you, you'd make the proper responses, you know. And um, so that was good. I was relieved. Okay, it looks like she's got her marbles. As a matter of fact, I think I said that to you. <laughs> I just came to see if you had your marbles, and you certainly did. And then I, then you, then you're recovering. Then I visited you again a few times later. Yeah, yeah. Recovery. So you, I remember when you came to Parkwood. Yeah, but then you were ready to go home, man. You were just like waiting to go home. But what what astounded me was that I mean I've been in the hospital a few times now. If you ever wanted to go in the hospital emergency room or whatever, you're there for hours and hours and hours just to to get to see somebody. And then you're waiting hours and hours and hours to see somebody else. Or to get results. But I have to say that when you go in the hospital and it looks as if you're, you're, you're dying, boy, you get treated real well and real quick. I went in once That's and right. I, I, had, I had indigestion, okay, and heartburn. But the thing is that it just would not go away. So I went in there and she said, what are you here for? And I just, I just put my hand up to my chest. She said, come along. And went in front of everybody, got my x-rays, got treated right away, like immediately, because they thought I was having a heart attack. All I did was raise my hand to my chest. And they didn't even get a chance to tell her. <laughs> and I was just going to let it ride. Okay, fine. I'm in here. Yeah, I know, um, actually, strangely enough, um, some years back, uh, my ex-husband gave me a call one time, and he said, um, I have a bit of emergency. And I said, uh, okay. And I thought he was just like, there was something going on. He couldn't take her son. I was, yeah, I got really bad chest pains. And I'm like, well, maybe you should call an ambulance. And he goes, no, could you give me a ride to the hospital, please? So I drove him to the hospital, got him in the door, and he 
they he said the exact same thing you did. They got him right in. He was X-rayed, and they dealt with him immediately. It was yeah. so fast. Yeah. It's unfortunate that our maybe we shouldn't be saying this out loud. People will be saying that to get into the hospital. <laughs> yeah, you basically have to die to get into the hospital. Well, that's always that's, that's the been the case for a long time. Well, that's the thing about the Canadian medical system. It's meant, I think, for emergent care, and that's about it. As far as anything else go, if you want an elective surgery, if you need a hip replacement, a knee replacement, if you're too old, mm-hmm. there, man, you're out of luck. Well, that was something that was mentioned um, quite a few times was because I was a quote-unquote young mother of two five-year-old twins. Mm -hmm. That played in a lot to the attention I got, I believe. Um, Not long after I got out of the hospital, they had this um, survivor's annual uh, affair that they had where you could meet the first responders um, that showed up. And I thought there was a huge pomp and circumstance. They played the bagpipes. They sang the national anthem. They had a member of uh, the, the city council speak. Uh, they thanked the indigenous people for the use of their land, which I yeah. thought was inappropriate. But and I thought, why is this such a big deal? I'm like, you know, people go by ambulance all the time. And they, well, but if they show up at a vital sign absent call, which I was, only like 11% survive that situation. I was going to say that it was a miracle, but then when I saw all that machinery, all I could think about was modern technology, oh, human yes. ingenuity, capitalism. That's why you survive. Well, also the dedication of the people that worked on me. I met the uh, two ambulance attendants, and they remember like Dora was playing on the TV screen, and they could hear the kids playing upstairs. So, And they knew that this was like... A mother of young children, and I and I could tell by the way they described that that that's why they put the extra effort in. We're going to take a little break. When we come back, we're going to talk about what we may learn from near-death experience. Back after this. Let's hear your report. Did you meet any interesting Earthlings this week? This week, I met an Earthling who makes greeting cards. Those are what humans send to people who are sick. Why don't they just send the doctor like we do on Ort? Oh, no, sir. You see, doctors are worshipped here. They don't come to see you, you go to see them. And they also live in luxury hotels called hospitals. These hospitals are so overcrowded, the humans have devised a strange and unusual custom of gaining admittance. Like what? One's called skiing. They climb to the top of a huge mountain of sky flakes. When they get there, they strap two pieces of wood to their feet and then they slide down. And if they're lucky, they hit a tree and they gain admittance to a hospital. That sounds like a lot of work. Oh, that's nothing. You should see how they gain admittance to a mortuary. Good night, sir. He says good night. Good night, Naomi. Good night. What's the matter? Bobby says you were sick. I was, but I'm okay now. Did a monster get you? Yes, I suppose so. But I chased him away. Pleasant dreams. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting on shortwave around the world and online. I'm in studio with my guests, Danielle Metz and Bob Metz. And you may be wondering to yourself, it's after a year since this has happened to Danielle, her near-death experience. Why bring it up now? And the, 
The answer is that it was just too close to us to really bring up, wasn't it, Danielle? Uh, yes, I haven't spoken about this publicly. I didn't post anything about it on Facebook. Um, outside of, um, well, my clients that I have a few have left, um, nobody else really knew outside of family and immediate friends. Yeah, it was it was a traumatic experience for all involved. I would say in some respects for the people around you, some in, more so than you because you have no memory of it. There was more people affected by your kids, your husband, um, me, <laughs> we had <laughs> just gotten Oma, into a business relationship. Yes. <laughs> well, what's well, bad timing? It's interesting too because that's when I started to get to know people and get to know things that I hadn't known about before. Like your husband Dan, I never got to know him as good as I did during that period of time. And I got to tell you, that guy is something else when it comes to dealing with difficult situations and even difficult people. And you know, hard. I've never seen anybody so perfectly handling people including the doctors and nurses in the hospital anytime if you want to go anywhere with that you take dan with you you know he'll calm he'll calm the whole room it's down. In, it's interesting i mean life had to go on mm-hmm. uh, while you're in, in in the hospital with 50 50 chances of, of surviving 50 that's too high <laughs> <laughs> well that's what bob said when he called me up and he we, we were in contact almost every day yeah. about this but um, Dan, Dan still had to take care of the twins, make sure that they got off to school. Oh, yeah, life went on as normal, and uh, we yeah. have to really thank... Took care, of, took care to the best that he could of your business. Yep. And um, it was just amazing to see somebody step up to that because you've had life goes on, no matter how hard that might be to... Uh, oh, yeah. He had to compartmentalize a lot of it. And it was it, it's it's still to this day is still pretty rough on him. He he's he's still afraid of losing me to a certain extent because it was so close and it was mm-hmm. so dear to him and it was so much. Even though he dealt with it well, it was quite overwhelming, as you can imagine. No. And but I I love him dearly, and those are the qualities of him that I've always admired the most. Now people may ask, if this happened on December eighth and you were admitted on the thirteenth again. Why is there a Danielle Metro on December 25th? And <laughs> what the week before that? <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's radio magic, folks. It's because you and I sat down and recorded a few shows prior to the Christmas season so that we didn't have to do it around Christmas. Yeah, a few, like exactly 14. That's how many shows were already in the can that we could still release over that period of time. But if you want to hear what Danielle sounded like just probably two days before December 8th, we recorded that um, Christmas show, probably last. Um, it was released on December 25th on Christmas. And you were coughing, you were hacking, I was coughing, and I, I was believe so congested. And I believe I couldn't even open the door to get out of the office. I had to open the door for you. And what, it, my final words to you as you were leaving that day, because uh, I said, Danielle, you're, you're looking so thin and... Yeah, and you told a, me your weight. I'm not going to say it. No, here, I'll tell. I was, I was, I was 103 pounds, and I'm almost five yeah. nine. That's 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 like deathly weight. And I said, you better take care of yourself, Danielle, because you've got a lot of people <laughs> relying on you. And so, what do you do? <laughs> <laughs> so, what do we take away well, from this? Just, I, I'd like to talk about that. For well, the a other second. thing is, as you say, life goes on. Because even during yeah. that period, remember what happened then. Um, our office had to be shut down because we had a flood in January, and that includes both Just Right and the Freedom Party of Ontario because we shared offices. 
Um, it never rains, but it pours. In this case, quite literally. Oh yes, and then <laughs> and then only a couple of months later, the election gets called, right? Yeah. Which pulls me into it, and so I was split all over the place. And the, and the thing was, I had I had this philosophy. I had to keep everything going. I said, look, until I know things are going to change, we're going to keep going as if, as compartmentalization. If. Yes. Yeah. So we just kept on releasing Danielle's shows, kept kept on doing our own shows, you know, as if nothing was going on. People closest to us were aware of the situation. And um, as time went, it just never got bad news. And the next thing I know, I was really shocked when Danielle got home after Parkwood, and we were expecting her to be walking around with a walker for six months and Parkwood's stuff. Parkwood's palliative care. Yeah. And... Um, how long did that last? Four days. Three days, four days. Four days I had the walker, and, and then, then it just she, got annoying, and then I said, I'm just going to walk. I don't care. And then she just started walking, and, and all of a sudden, life just sort of slowly turned and back And now I would say that you look healthier than you, oh, than yes. you did well, before I, you I, got I, pneumonia. Well, I'm quite a bit uh, more uh, meaty, as yes. people have <laughs> described. Got, she's got more, more, more weight on her now than I've ever seen her. <laughs> Outside of being pregnant, mayhaps, but... <laughs> Not that much, but, <laughs> but of course, the the, very, the first one of the first questions that people ask when when you know that somebody was clinically dead, as you were, is, did you see the light? Did you go to the light, Danielle? Sadly, Any, or anything of that nature. And what were your experiences? No, there, there were there were none. Um, I've actually had two or three people ask me that, and I've unfortunately had to disappoint them to say that nope. Based on the fact that. Like, to give you an example, back in August of 2007, I got really, really, really sick. I, had, I was throwing up. I had fever. I had chills. I couldn't take care of my kid. I remember this clearly. And this was 11 years ago. I have, there's no memory here. So I can't, there's no brain. I don't know what my brain was interpreting or what it was firing on or anything. It's just such a strange, surreal experience. Not, I ceased to exist, essentially. And there was nothing. I didn't see anything. There was no light. No voices, no angels singing, nothing. So your experience conformed to your own personal philosophy? I wouldn't say that per se. I would say that I think whatever was going on just shut down my brain to the point where any memory was not being retained. So I might have seen something. Who knows? You could have I gone know. to the good place. I could have gone to the good place. And then back again. And then back again. <laughs> But you, unfortunately, your memory was wiped, just like in the, in the TV show. <laughs> yeah, I was men in black. Um, but yeah, the, the weirdest part, too, also, is when I got home, uh, it, being home felt more surreal than being in the hospital because I started to get really used to being in the hospital, which is part of the reason why I made sure I left when I did because they wanted to keep me longer. They said, oh, well, you know, your kid's got a cold. You should stay in the hospital a bit longer, we'll get you up. And I said, no, I got to get home. I'm getting too comfortable. And when I did get home, home was different because stuff had changed since I was gone and I didn't have my work anymore because most of my clients, like, obviously they had to leave because I wasn't, they didn't know if I was going to live or die. And since I do bookkeeping, kind of need somebody there on a regular basis to file their taxes and do their stuff. So I came home to a completely different world than I left and that was very surreal in and of itself. And also having had the delirium dreams that I had that were so vivid, it was kind of for a while I had a bit of PTSD of what was real and what wasn't. Because I, it just it felt so different than what I had left before. I remember, I, I remember one day you, I was visiting you in the hospital and you were starting to get sort of, you know, with it, right? But you still weren't there. 
And you told me one day, you said, I know that half of what I'm seeing I'm, is not really real. Yep. It's, it's, it's not really happening. It's hallucinating. But you were totally aware of it, and you were telling me about it. And interestingly enough, you said to me, like, and then you said, like, for example, I think there's somebody standing right beside me here. And then I looked up, and I said, well, there's nobody standing beside you, but there is someone on the other side of the curtain with the patient next to you. And I think what you, you were seeing, and maybe carrying forward to a bigger hallucination or whatever you might call it, was that person's shadow walking by, and, and you, you, you sensed it. The person, there was a person there on the other side of the curtain, but not right beside you on the bed. And little things like that you would pick up. And, and, I, and I, would, I would assure you that, no, it's, you're not hallucinating. There is someone there. They're just on the other side of the curtain kind of thing. And you're not seeing it quite right, you know? So there was a lot of that going on. Yeah, and, and Robert, you're, you're in a weird situation because I know, you know, before I, we even got together, you used to have a, 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 this horrible job, I used to think, where you went around interviewing dying patients. It's true. I worked at, uh, what was that, the F- Thames Valley Family Practice Research Unit. Mm-hmm. Um, attached to um, University Hospital and the university, and I would go around and interview dying cancer patients. They went out a few months left, and they were going to be admitted to to Parkwood if they if they passed a certain criteria of pain management. And I would go out there with questionnaires and ask them about that. So that was very interesting to see how they were managing with um, their in uh, imminent d- and demise. Um, but what, what was going on with you in, in recovery was interesting to me because, again, after family practice research unit, I went to Mon to, um, into clor- clinical neuropsychology. And so I know a little bit about the brain and how it works, probably more so than your average beer. But So I was intrigued by the fact that, first of all, you have no memory of that first few weeks or month that you were having delirium, which is interesting, that you had these episodes of, uh, you told me that you, I, you know, I'd written so many novels in my oh, head, definitely. trying to keep your brain active in an, in an environment where there's absolutely nothing going on around you, except that you're probably being woken up every two hours to have your vitals taken. Because I've been in hospital too, and it's not a place no, to it's go not re- to sleep. No, it's not relaxing at all. So all of those things are interesting, especially the um, so-called um, after after-death experiences that you did not have, apparently, or if you did, you certainly don't remember them. Um, that's what I find fascinating. And I had my own little tiny personal recounting of something that happened to me. I had a, um, a, brocus, a broken arm, radius and ulmar broken, and I had a fixator put in, an external fixator. It's a, a metal bar outside the arm to keep it mo- uh, immobile while the bones knit. And when they had to take that off of me it was surgery to put me under and I can remember being put under and then immediately after I remember waking up down the corridor in a a recovery room Mm. and there was zero passage of time it was like count backwards from 10 10 9 8 and I'm awake elsewhere like being transported in Star Trek (laughs) from one place to another except it was immediate and that got me thinking about how the brain actually perceives time, about actual existence itself, and how um, the chemical reactions in your brain are all that you have to, to perceive and to understand and to interact with reality. And when that's interrupted, it's quite an earth-shattering experience. 
Yeah, it, 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 and it makes you kind of doubt yourself, too, in a certain way, because it's like, well, you think that you're, you're, you are yourself. And when you cease being yourself for any period of time, then that, it, it's disorienting. Eleanor, come on in. Hi, Eleanor. I'm Michael. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks for asking. Oh, one question. Where am I? Who are you and what's going on? Right. So, you, Eleanor Shellstrop, are dead. Your life on Earth has ended, and you are now in the next phase of your existence in the universe. Cool. Cool. I have some questions. Thought you might. Um, am I... I mean, is this... Or... Well, it's not the heaven or hell idea that you were raised on. But generally speaking, in the afterlife, there's a good place and there's a bad place. You're in the good place. You're okay, Eleanor. You're in the good place. Well, that's good. Sure is. <laughs> okay, let's take a walk, shall we? Oh, did I have a purse? No, I'm dead. Right. Okay. Well, what, after all, is the value of life? And does the question pivot on the identity of the life in question? Is the life of Einstein, say, of greater value than that of a convicted rapist? Are two lives of greater value than one, maybe even twice as great? Is the value of life constant across the lifespan? If only one of two patients can be saved, one of them a healthy five-year-old now entering a life of promise and joy, and the other an aged and sickly person of 94, should both be regarded as of equal value. From a moral point of view, does it make any difference whether the action taken is designed to end a life or the non-action is designed to permit a death that could be averted? That is, is there a moral difference between killing and letting die. In this same connection, if there is genetic evidence to the effect that a developing fetus is likely to be seriously disabled, well, what has moral philosophy to offer by way of guidance here? Similarly, if the value of one's life to one enduring chronic pain and suffering is judged to be negligible, is euthanasia or even suicide the morally right course of action? And in what measures or by what calculus are we to specify the units of value? Dollars? Pleasure? Utility? Intrinsic worth? And who is to decide uh, on how these values should be assigned in a given case? The doctors? The courts? Moral theorists? Patients? Next of kin? Well, these form a daunting set of questions, and none of them ripe for easy answer. And yet I find that certain things have an uncanny way of repeating themselves. Like, for instance, I come from a long line of dead people. <laughs> I don't know why I'm so unlucky. I never shot an albatross that wasn't asking for it. 
But then you make your own luck, as my old granddad said, just before he spontaneously combusted. <laughs> of course, he had it coming to him, you know. But some people die tragically early, don't they? Like Mozart, six o'clock in the morning. <laughs> Never in that time to put the kettle on. What a tragedy. Unless you believe in reincarnation, you know, which I don't, not this time around anyway. But, um... So at the beginning of the show, I mentioned how one's mind is focused when the reality of our existence is punctuated by a death. We, we, we realize that we're staring into an abyss. And the closer that abyss is, the more you value living every day to the fullest. Is that the impression that you're taking away from this, Danielle and Bob, when you see that, boy, it's a, it's a reminder that, yeah, we have a limited time, let's make the most of it. Did that go through your mind? Uh, I have to say that, sadly, no. Um, <laughs> That's because you did it anyway, right? <laughs> well, strangely enough, it kind of, to me, and this is going to sound really depressing, and I'm sorry, but it made life seem kind of worth less because it was so easily lost. Do you know what I mean, if that makes any sense? And I live with the reminders of frailty every day because I still have serious nerve damage in my left hand, which causes me, um, it's functional, but it still hurts a lot. I have huge scars everywhere. I've got chunks taking out of the side where I have my four chest tubes where I've got my trach scar, I've got my feeding tube scar, I've got my dialysis scar, I've got scars on my arms for so many different things that they had plugged into me. And it's just a daily reminder of how frail life is. I, I suppose that's supposed to make me value it more, but it does, hasn't. It's made me, to a certain extent, kind of sad about the whole thing. That's, that's actually quite fascinating. I remember when my daughter, when she was very young, asked me about what happens to you when you die. And I said to her, do you remember what it was like before you were born? And she goes, no. And I said, it's like that except for longer. And her response was quite telling. She pondered a bit and says, well, I better make the most of my life than be happy. <laughs> Good for her. And she did. And she's very successful and she's very happy. So I'm glad to see that that's at least somebody who took some good advice <laughs> from me. <laughs> One thing I learned about myself is, boy, could I get a lot of work done when <laughs> I was focused and trying to keep my mind off something else, right? I, had, I got jobs done that I had been putting off for months, right? And they just whizzed by like I, they were no effort at all. Suddenly, it's amazing. And I, other people, I guess, might get unfocused and unable to do stuff. But I, I, I went the other way. I became very focused. And, you know, it, it's almost like this show. And, and you, hear, you hear people in show business and stuff. No matter how bad things around you get, the show must go on. Right? And that's a message for life as well. I remember listening just recently to Jordan Peterson. I think it was at the Cambridge Union. And... Somebody asked him about, about life and more or less staring into the abyss and uh, what are you going to do about it. And he said, look, you can do two things. It's very easy. It's very easy to do nothing. He said, that's the default position. I can easily sit in this chair or I can get up and do 20 push-ups and improve my body and, and things like that. But why do that if I can just sit here and do nothing? It's, it's the default position. Laziness and death, actually, are the default position. You don't want to do anything. You will die very quickly. Don't drink any water. You'll die in a couple of days, right? Don't eat. You'll die in a month or so. That kind of a thing. Don't take care of your body and you will die. He says, life is action and you have to make a conscious decision 
to adopt a philosophy. I'm paraphrasing here. Well, in fact, Ayn Rand literally said, "Life is a process of self-sustaining action." Well, yes, that's that's more that's yeah. true, more or less a dictionary definition. But the thing is that you just don't want to eat and drink because anybody can do that. That doesn't require a lot of effort, especially in this day and age. Um, but it takes a lot to enjoy your life, and that has to have a, a conscious and willful element to it. You have to choose to be productive and choose to be happy and choose to lead a, um, a life that you can actually say that, yes, that was a life well lived. And now I'll go into the abyss. <laughs> one, one, uh, what, what's that uh, old epitaph? Um, a giant leap into the dark, something like that. Yeah, it, it, there's, a, there's um, a willingness. You have to be willing to live. Well, as I, I kept telling him when Dan was having such a hard time, he, when he was worried about me when I was in the hospital, and once I was conscious enough, I said, listen, you know me. I'm more stubborn than anybody else on the face of the earth. There's no <laughs> way that I'm going to die. Don't worry about it. And you know what? I think attitude has a lot to do with it, with, with a person's ability to survive, you know, up against the odds. Well, you were right. Definitely no place for a city girl. Uh, I don't know. From what Walls told me, living in a city can be just as dangerous. Haven't you ever lived in a city? Never been to a city. Kidding? Nah. Cities are crowded, right? If I went and lived in some city, I'd only make it worse. Here, try this. Do you want me to have a look at that? It's just a scratch. Yeah, well, a scratch can turn septic out here. Give us a look. That's all right. Mick? Ah, oh, Mick. So I automate. Sneaking up on a man when he's rendering first aid to a lady. Uh, is that what you were doing? Of course, the weird thing about this whole situation was the disbelief we all went through that it could have gotten this bad, right? And so quickly, because it just caught everybody by surprise. And I think a lot of people don't really know about sepsis, this disease, and I thought we should just go over quickly. Let's do our public service announcement here, because it's important. Yes. It is. I've had several people, when I tell them about it, thank me for clarifying what to look for. Well, we can thank Lisa Brandt in, in kind here, because she wrote this for the piece that was in the hospital at the time Danielle was there. And she points out how sepsis is a potentially life-threatening complication of an infection, and it occurs when chemicals released into the bloodstream to fight the infection trigger inflammatory responses throughout the body. That's what's happening. People also may have um, associated with what's a more common term, I think, is septic shock. Yes. And it says, uh, to be diagnosed with sepsis, there will likely be an infection as well as at least two of the following symptoms. Body temperature above 38.3 centigrade or below 36 degrees centigrade, heart rate higher than 90 beats per minute, respiratory rate higher than 20 breaths a minute. And in the case of severe sepsis, there would also be at least one of the following signs. Uh, Significantly decreased urine output, abrupt change in mental status, decrease in blood platelet count, difficulty breathing, abnormal heart pumping action, abdominal pain. And the causes of this are pretty much any infection, bacterial, viral, or fungal, but are most likely to include pneumonia, abdominal pain, the kidneys, and the bloodstream. Now, I know of one person who died a year before Danielle suffered from sepsis and who died from sepsis just because he had a sore on his leg. 
and hadn't looked after it quick enough and went to the hospital and didn't survive the first 24 hours. And apparently the risk factors are if you're very young, very old, have a compromised immune system, are already sick, or have other wounds and injuries such as burns. So you can see it's a very, very serious I guess you'd call it a condition more, more than you would call it a disease, wouldn't you? Um, I remember the um, newspapers around the same time last year, last winter. That was a, a number of, winter. A number of people died of sepsis, and a number of children too. And um, it was almost like every, every week or so you'd hear of a kid. Well, dying. and the strange thing too is because what uh, the level or the rate of people dying from this uh, condition is higher than you would then is reported because what they usually do is report the underlying condition. So, for example, died, yeah, so di- I would have been said died of pneumonia mm-hmm. if I had passed away other than septic shock. So it is underreported and it's not very well widely known about or people don't seem to understand the condition. Like, I mean, a cut in the leg, I mean, you wouldn't think. But you have to be very, very careful. Well, I'm thinking of the fact that you said, well, you're afraid of hospitals and you don't want to go there. I wonder if that helped uh, precipitate the fact that, well, you had a cold when you were with me and recording those shows. A couple of days later, you had pneumonia, right? But you took your medication. Yep. Religiously. And um, then you went into septic shock. Obviously, the, the the medication didn't take care of the, the pneumonia quick enough, I suppose. I, I would assume so. But it was an interesting thing, experience in the hospital. A nurse or doctor came up to me. I only kind of half remember this. And she was very upset. She, I, I got this a lot, actually, when I was there. People coming up and going, I'm so happy you're alive. Because they'd seen me when I was first admitted, and they didn't think I was going to survive. So I had quite a few people there come and talk to me about that. And this one person kind lady came up and she was crying and she said you shouldn't have had to suffer what you went through she said they should have caught it they said that it was it was unfair you shouldn't have had to gone through that they you're, are they suggesting that when you um, presented with the pneumonia I'm not they sure I I'm just going to guess that maybe they thought that she was just figuring that it was I just assumed it was bad luck I never took it as any ill will or any incompetence on behalf of the practitioners in any way, shape, or form. But I, I just thought that was an interesting thing to say, and she was very shook up and upset about it. Hmm. So do not treat a cold lately, and <laughs> or especially oh. if it progresses to pneumonia, oh. be very careful. Dan goes, you realize, anytime you cough, we're going to the doctor now, right? <laughs> <laughs> Life goes on, Dan, but hey, okay, chill sometimes. All right. <laughs> so I think... Uh, Round the table, any takeaway points from this traumatic uh, experience that obviously it, it's so traumatic it took us a year to even be able to talk <laughs> about it freely. It, it was a hard thing to deal with. And like I said, a lot of um, PTSD kind of symptoms happened afterwards. And it's only been the last few months that I've become, I've gained a sense of humor about the whole thing. It is now kind of, I guess that's another way of dealing with trauma is through humor. And that's kind of how I adopted my ability to deal with it. Yeah, I think. Part of the problem, or part part of the reason that we, you know, left it so late was because the story hadn't played out yet, and we didn't really know how it ended, or how it would end. And it's, of course, not over. Life is not over till it's over. But this chapter in our life is hopefully behind us. And for myself, a little more on the periphery than that. You guys are so close together. Um, I think that it, it it just reminds everybody, reminds myself, of course, that time is limited. Uh, enjoy the day and um, live for today plan for tomorrow and join us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction god willing if we're still alive until then be right stay right do right act right and think right and be right back here see you cheers
it into color Color it to black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be alright Well, that's the end of the film. Now here's the meaning of life. Thank you, Brigitte. Well, it's nothing very special. But try and be nice to people, avoid eating fat, read a good book every now and then, get some walking in, and try and live together in peace and harmony with people of all creeds and nations. <laughs>